The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now, our topic is uh, what to say when you're asked about the rapture. And uh, I'm concerned in the way even I've formulated the topic uh, that we deal not simply with a doctrinal issue, namely, what does the Bible teach about the second coming of Christ and in particular the relationship uh, of various events connected with the second coming. Now, that's an important question, and we might easily spend all our time just on that question. But I want the focus to be actually in a somewhat different direction, namely to ask ourselves how we deal with people who disagree with us, or how, if we don't even have an opinion, how we go about making up our minds uh, what to believe. But I suspect that many of you in this room uh, do have some kind of position on this uh, subject already. If you don't, I'm going to give you a few texts that may help you. Uh, so I want to talk about uh, what do you say when you're asked, uh, do you believe in the rapture? And, uh, and my answer is, you would say, of course I do. <laughs> uh, but you may, uh, and uh, if you're in my category, uh, you may not believe in the rapture in exactly the same way that someone else expects that you do. So if that's the case, how do you go about explaining your position? And in this respect, uh, I think there is much advice and counsel and, well, it's not merely uh, nice advice that's optional, but it's in the way of commandment in the Bible that we take care about how we communicate with other Christians with whom we may disagree. For instance, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 23, the Apostle Paul, of course, is talking to Timothy as someone who is a minister of the word, as someone who has special leadership responsibilities. But I think in a broader sense, the principles are applicable even to those who do not have those special responsibilities. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23 He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Uh, And I should say, uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts, it's recorded that they had a a sharp debate with people who were contending about uh, an issue uh, that was uh, very uh, close to the center of the faith. It isn't as if there is no room for debate over theological issues. But the Apostle Paul is talking about a kind of wrangling contentiousness which can take place even over details. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. So he doesn't just give up and say it makes no difference what you believe. But on the other hand, he's not to be Uh, wranglingly contentious. He must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So there are some kinds of theological error that are not merely human in origin. The devil himself has captivated people and they are in the clutch of a deception which is supernatural. And that ought to cause us right away to have a sense of pity there and to, have, to be engaged in prayer that people will come to the truth. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that the particular issue we're going to, to study today is necessarily of that kind of seriousness. I think when you're, you're talking about the, this kind of uh, snare of the devil, it's often uh, what I uh, think of, and I think the kind of thing that Paul had in mind was something like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, where here are people who claim to be, uh, give allegiance to the Bible, and yet when you talk to them, you find out eventually that uh, they are in the clutch of a whole system which is larger than they are and which has provided them many answers that look plausible and uh, many kinds of emotional support from a community that's behind them and that threatens them uh, with various kinds of sanctions if they leave. So uh, it's uh, in many respects then a counterfeit of the truth, close enough to the truth to be plausible and yet far enough away from it to, to keep people from the true way of salvation. So there's that kind of error, all right, uh, which is out-and-out out heresy or false religion. And uh, I want to make it clear, I do not believe that the controversy we're dealing with uh, over the details of the Second Coming, essentially, that that is of the same magnitude. In fact, I believe that there are some difficulties in the interpretation of particular scripture, that is, when you try to fit one scripture together with another, uh, and so that there is some reason why the Christian, the body of Christ, has some struggles coming to agreement here. So I do not think then that this agreement is of the same magnitude as, as uh, some of these larger things uh, of uh, actual heresy. And yet, it's a matter which from time to time has caused considerable contention in the body of Christ. How do we deal with people then? who disagree. There's one other scripture I want to bring to bear, and that is Proverbs 16, verse 23, which says that the mind of the wise man makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And uh, I think there is much to be said for the uh, wisdom of that particular proverb in its observations of the fact it doesn't only matter what I believe or what you believe, but also your selection of an appropriate and wise way of communicating it. You add persuasiveness to your lips if you have the mind of a wise person and you can select an appropriate way of putting something that builds bridges to the person that you're talking to. But now let's get down to the issue. We said we're, we've got to deal with the issue of communication as well as the issue of what does the Bible teach. Uh, the first passage I think that people think of, most people think of when they talk about the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. And let's take a look at that passage and then uh, lay a foundation in terms of what pe different people do with the passage. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I'll begin reading. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, this passage is perhaps the classic passage which describes something that's been labeled conventionally the rapture. Rapture meaning catching someone up. And here the picture is of believers, first those who have died in Christ, but then also those who are still alive and living on earth at the time of Christ's uh, coming, that together they are caught up, that is, raptured, taken up from the earth to meet Christ in the air. And that's the picture. Now, the difficulty comes because there is more than one view here of how we understand this passage in relationship to other passages. And the view which is most common, I believe, in the United States at the present time is the view which I have overhead. Now, as a matter of fact, I might as well tell you right away that I don't agree with it. <laughs> but I want to make sure we know where we are uh, in terms of talking about more than one view. Now, this particular... But I don't agree with it. <laughs> but I want to make sure we know where we are uh, in terms of talking about more than one view. Now, this particular... The, there's a, on the overhead, I've got a sequence, basically, of events. And it's believed by a position called pre-tribulational premillennialism that this is the way things are going to happen. First of all, the first coming of Christ, which, of course, is past. We are now in the church age. Now, this particular position identifies the, what happens in 1 Thessalonians 4 with the rapture. That's the first event in this diagram where Christ comes and Christians who are still alive and those who are dead are taken up with him. Now you see that arrow there turns around and that's because the people in this position believe that Christ does not come down all the way to earth. Rather he meets his people in the air and they together go back up into heaven. All this taking place not visible to the world at large. Then there is a seven-year tribulation period, and in the middle of it, uh, some usually people think that there is a certain outbreak of hostility from the Antichrist, but we need not go into the details. At the end of that, there is a final battle and the second coming of Christ. Openly this time, everyone sees him, but of course, the Christian dead and those still living have already been in heaven over this seven-year period. They come in with him to earth to judge the world at that point. And then there follows a millennium. And in that respect, this is a premillennial point of view. But the distinctive thing to notice is that the second coming in this view comes in two stages. Rapture first, and then seven years later, second advent. Now, I have been asked by some 
believers in Christ, do you believe in the rapture? And when they ask that question, often what they mean is, do you believe in this entire scheme? So that puts me in a bind because I don't believe in the entire scheme. On the other hand, I do want to say I believe in what 1 Thessalonians 4 describes. And so I have to, I find myself wanting to say, well, yes and no, wait a minute, what do we mean by the rapture? But I think uh, my inclination personally, and it's what I advise you to do if, if, if uh, you do not agree with this scheme and you're asked about it, is to say, yes, I believe in the rapture. And by, when I say that, I mean I believe what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. But then I'll say, uh, I believe that happens at the same time as the second coming where Christ appears visibly. Okay, so I'll clarify to people, yes, I believe in the Bible, <laughs> but I think that the events described in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, come at the same time. Now, the alternative view then that I'm describing to the one we have overhead is this. It would be, rather than a two-stage second coming, a one-stage second coming. All right, so you have the first coming of Christ, you have the church age, and then you do have a rapture, okay? <laughs> it's not out of the picture. Believers are caught up with Christ in the air. But Christ continues coming down, if you will, and the, uh, on the overhead, the solid line is to indicate uh, the movement of Christ as he returns. And they, with him then, come to earth, and there is a judgment right away. So it's only a comparatively short period of time, a matter of minutes or hours, who knows, that is involved in that entire sequence of events. So the decisive difference is not, as I see it, and I'd want to say this clearly to somebody else, not that I don't believe in a rapture, but that I think that it's basically simultaneous, virtually simultaneous, but uh, followed right after by the visible second coming of Christ to earth to judge the nations and for the transformation of the world. But uh, now there's a certain preliminary objection, and uh, I think that uh, if uh, you hold to the same view as I do, and I'm more advising people in, in the camp that I am, what do you say? If you're in the other camp, don't worry about it for a minute. But uh, I'm going to um, say some things which I hope will help you be reconciled to the fact that there are people who disagree with you, even if they don't convince you uh, of another uh, position. But I'm not so interested in, in only in what's right, uh, remember, but uh, in how we communicate with other people. If you hold to this uh, position, which I now have overhead, that there is one unified second coming, you ought to be ready for a certain objection which will come from many people, uh, and that comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4. And the argument is something like this. Isn't the natural reading of 1 Thessalonians 4 in terms of a secret rapture, that is, in terms of something that is not visible to the world, because... Does it make sense that we should be caught up in the air to meet Christ only immediately to come right back down again? Why should we 
go up only to come right back down. Does that make sense? And uh, I think so, some people feel a certain difficulty that this is, it, it is a procedure that doesn't make sense. Well, I have two things to say about that. One is, maybe it's three things. One is that the passage itself does not indeed explicitly say what happens after the saints, that is, Christians, meet Christ. It says they continue with him, but it doesn't say in which direction. It doesn't say explicitly, all right? But the second point is that somebody or other has to turn around. <laughs> when you think about it, either Christ turns around and goes back, or believers turn around <laughs> and come back. So it seems to me on some basic level, we've got to say, well, maybe something doesn't make sense. Either way, you do it. But in fact, I think they both make reasonable sense because uh, the, the, the picture is something like the picture when the believers in Rome go out to meet Paul. In Acts 28.15, it's worth looking at this passage, Acts 28.15. Well, let's start with verse 14. There, that is Puteoli. Now, Paul is on his journey to Rome. This is the very last stop. There, at Puteoli, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we went to Rome. The brothers there, that is, in Rome, had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, now you see the picture is, Paul is coming to Rome, the believers there go out to meet him, and then they come back, it doesn't say explicitly, but presumably they lived in Rome, they came back with him to Rome. All right, so the situation is analogous to a situation where Christ comes to us, we go out to meet him and come back to where we were. It's a natural situation that happens in ordinary human life when you're eager to see someone. You go out to meet them, and then you may welcome them back to your own place. So, uh, and it's interesting indeed that the same word occurs, this word to meet uh, in Acts 28 is the same one as in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, I think the word actually doesn't imply what happens after the meeting. You can go either direction, and uh, the word itself doesn't convey that. But I think this illustration, this parallel, is helpful to understand that First uh, Thessalonians need not imply that we've necessarily got then a return of Christ to heaven after the point at which the Christians meet him in the air. But uh, the, the uh, point of that observation is uh, really a fairly minor one, namely to remove an initial objection to, that, that people may feel, well, do you really believe this passage if you're taking a view uh, other than the one I've been brought up with. One of the reasons, many of you know, one of the reasons why I'm addressing this problem is that I think in our day and in, within the bounds of the United States, many uh, genuine believers have been brought up hearing nothing but this view. And it may be an initial shock to them to find out not every Christian believes this view. They've been told virtually this is the only view which is biblical. Well, actually this view has come in only since the 19th century. 
but somebody who has grown up in it may not realize that it's a fairly recent view uh, in terms of the whole history of church doctrine. But now I want to bring in another passage because you may not want to stay just at the point of view. You probably won't want to stay just the, uh, in the area of saying, well, 1 Thessalonians 4 may not by itself imply all this. But even if it doesn't, uh, the people who believe this view believe it because they've been shown lots of texts which, as they think, lead people to this uh, view when they're taken all together. So another text which I would like to bring in and which would really be part of an argument to say, look, here is a text which seems at least to point in another direction. Maybe you have gotten hold of texts and put them together and it seemed plausible to you to put them together this way, and yet there are other texts which strongly seem to imply a unified second coming. And one of these texts is 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. Now, our reason for bringing it, this up is not only that it is a text, which I think is of value in this controversy, but because in the whole Bible, this is probably the most convenient text. So if I'm advising you how to deal with people, I'm saying... If you have to pick one text, and probably that's all the time that you will have, to, uh, that the other person will have patience to talk with you, or that you may have patience to talk with them. Uh, if you have to pick one text, this is a good one. It's probably the best in the whole Bible. Second Thessalonians 1. Now, uh, it's not the whole chapter, but uh, some key verses near the uh, middle of the chapter that I think are the important ones. And I'll begin reading at verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this, he means the total response then, of the Thessalonians, but particularly they're bearing up under persecution. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And uh, I think he's thinking, anticipating the last judgment when there will be a separation of the righteous and the wicked. They are showing themselves to be righteous, not that their righteousness is the ultimate ground for their salvation, but that it, it confirms the justice of God's ways. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, this is near the heart of things. These uh, verses 6 and 7, and we'll get to verse 8 in a minute. It's those verses which are the key to our understanding what the Apostle Paul is teaching here concerning the second coming. Now, there is a general uh, principle that's operative in God's justice that you get back what, is, what you have done. As you have done, it shall be done to you. That sort of principle you can see operating all the way through the Old Testament as a principle of God's justice. How does that work in terms of the situation of the Thessalonian Christians? 
During the church age, they are, the believers are troubled, they are afflicted, they are persecuted. Of course, that persecution is not uniform in all times and places. But the Apostle Paul recognizes that all who live a godly life as Christians will be persecuted. Second Thessalonians, Second Timothy 3. They are troubled, and it's not simply general troubles, but particularly troubles from unbelievers who are opposing them or mocking them or, or even uh, uh, trying to get them killed in some cases. And it is unbelievers, it is non-Christians then, who bring trouble upon them. Sometimes the Jews, but sometimes also Gentiles. Now what Paul is saying is that relief will come to you Thessalonians, but of course the Thessalonians stand for, in effect, all who belong to Christ. Relief will come to them, and that trouble... Punishment will come to those who at present are doing this unjust uh, affliction of the Thessalonians. All right, so there is a reversal here, a very just, a fitting kind of reversal considering the kind of sister situation that the Thessalonians are in. Now, all this takes place in a general way at the second coming. Now, that does not yet, of course, decide the crucial issue do we conceive of this second coming as in two stages, first of all, rapture, and then this open second coming, or do we conceive of it as in one stage, the two diagrams that you saw? Which of those is it? What I believe is uh, the decisive uh, statement on one side is the last part of verse 7. Now, the first part is said, to give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And then the last part says, this will happen, that is, this relief and this trouble, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now, the key word there is when. Now, some of you may have somewhat different translations, but I, nearly all of them will have when. It does correspond to a word in Greek. Uh, nearly all you will have some word, some temporal word like when in verse 7. This will happen. What will happen? Well, this relief to the believers and the punishment to unbelievers will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Now, the point which I would like to make here is that Paul seems to be saying that these things come simultaneously, that the relief to believers and the affliction to unbelievers both come at the same time and he tells what time they come. Namely, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. And he tells what time they come. Namely, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. Now, some of you may be already anticipating what I'm going to say, namely, that this causes a certain difficulty for this scheme. Because in this scheme, the relief to believers, to be sure, does come right here, okay? Because they are not only taken out of the earth, and obviously they'll be free from persecution, but they are raised in new resurrection bodies which is the perfect and final relief for them. 
And then you might also say, well, wait, doesn't trouble come to the rest? All right, because the rest, the unbelievers, are left in this period of tribulation. And that is true as well. But it's a certain kind of trouble, namely it's tribulation on earth. Now, if you look at 2 Thessalonians 1, you'll see that that's not the kind of trouble that Paul has in mind here. For one thing, he says the when is, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire, which sounds like the open second coming already, all right, too early for our pre-tribulational scheme, with his powerful angels. And then verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Fine, we already know that. Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And you see, the punishment which the Apostle Paul has in mind is not simply some preliminary kind of thing. But it is everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at uh, among all those who have believed. Verse 10, notice also, on the day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at. So, so this seems all to be located at one unified event, both the relief and the trouble, as, I, as this uh, other diagram shows, both the relief and the trouble come virtually simultaneously in one unified second coming. And that second coming, of course, is a visible second coming. It's when he has revealed the blazing fire and so on. And that's language which we associate with a visible second coming. Now, it's this passage then that uh, I would recommend, which, which I have in fact used, but which I would recommend you're using to say, this is a passage which is why I believe what I believe. I understand there may be arguments in other directions which are appealing, but can you understand that this passage seems to be pushing me this way and that I'm not content with believing anything else because it's pushing me that way? Now, you see, I think that we can call on people to recognize that in prophecies concerning the future, we are not entirely unlike people in the Old Testament uh, were when they had to deal with prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. They had to struggle to piece together a large number of prophecies concerning those events, and it was not always easy to do. Mistakes could be made. And in a situation like that, I want to call on people who disagree with me to say, understand that there may be difficulties, but look, here is the passage. Can you understand that I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture? I recognize you're trying to be too, but that we've got to struggle here, that it's not all as simple as maybe you have been brought up to think it was. And it's not so much your fault. And you see, uh, with respect to this particular problem of people who are shocked because they never knew there was any other position, I see the primary fault not being with them. I mean, they're mainly to be pitied, but with those who have taught them. Because those who have taught them were in positions of responsibility where often they did know there were other positions, but have deliberately built barriers which are difficult now for me or uh, other people to overcome. 
So I could wish that those who held to our pre-tribulational scheme would first of all be a little more generous. I know some of them are, but many of them, I'm afraid, are not as generous as I'd like them to be in saying, look, this is one view. There are fine believers in Christ who believe something else. I think it's wrong, and here's why. But they are still believers. They are still brothers, and treat them as such. Now, you see, I want to say the same thing on the other side, all right? But uh, uh, I'm concerned in our talk that we try to build bridges because I think some people have had difficulty, particularly when they haven't been told that there is another view or when they have been, uh, the other views have been presented in, in an uncharitable fashion. Now, there's one other passage which uh, I would uh, commend to you as being useful, and that is in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. And this is another passage which I think uh, is pointing towards a unified second coming. Um, But uh, it's a little uh, more difficult to see that it is because it must be taken in connection with other passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable is clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. And so on. Now, the point is, there are, in a sense, two aspects to this passage. And one, the main aspect, certainly, is that it is a description of Christ raising believers to new resurrection bodies. All evangelicals agree that that will occur at the second coming. But uh, for those who believe in a two-stage second coming, all of them will place it at the rapture. Incidentally, there are some who place the rapture midway through the tribulation here. But um, my observations with respect to them will be fundamentally the same. I think the difficulties are fundamentally the same. So this position places the events of 1 Corinthians 15 at the rapture. That's when the resurrection of believers occur. The difficulty which this creates is a difficulty arising from the phrase in verse 52, the last trumpet. And that this event of the rapture is simultaneous with the sounding of the last trumpet. Now I want you to compare 1 Corinthians 15 with Matthew 24, 31. Matthew 24 31 and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other now here also you see there is a trumpet call presumably this must either be the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15 or it must be something preceding that last trumpet, if it's really the last. But 
what happens when this trumpet call is sounded? Well, it's the gathering of his elect. Now, people disagree as to what that is, whether that's the gathering of Christians, which would make this identical with 1 Corinthians 15, or whether it's the gathering simply of Jews who are left in the tribulation. But if we place the last trumpet call at the rapture, it can't be later than that, so it's got to be identical with the rapture, okay? So it's got to be the gathering of Christian dead and those still alive to himself. Now look at verse 30. At that time, the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's the open second coming, you see. And it's right together with the rapture. So we're back to a unified second coming of saying we have got the gathering of the saints to Christ as they are raised from the dead as their bodies are transformed the last trumpet call of 1 Corinthians 15 and because that's the last it's got to be essentially the same as what's in Matthew 24 and Matthew 24 verse 30 does describe the visible second coming of Christ now that for that reason you see I'm saying if you take these two passages together, the one in 1 Corinthians and the one in Matthew 24, and you observe this thing about the unity of the trumpets involved, uh, then you're led to the same conclusion as we already arrived at by 2 Thessalonians 1. Now, I don't want to pretend that there are not responses to the passages that I have given you particularly the one in 1 Corinthians 15, there is a standard response, although I don't think it's completely adequate. But uh, the one in 2 Thessalonians 1, I think, is very difficult to respond to, uh, to answer adequately uh, on the part, that is, to, to construct an answer which defends uh, the pre-tribulational point of view. But uh, at this point, I'm... Uh, Really, I'm not calling on everyone. Some of you in this room may believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. I want you to think about these passages. I want you to struggle with them. Uh, I'm not calling on you to, to give up your belief without looking at these passages and others which may have seemed to you to point in the other direction. But uh, what I'd, the reason why I'm uh, laying these passages out is not because I think they are all at once going to decide the issue by themselves, but because I think they are the most useful tools in at least uh, establishing some preliminary, in some preliminary way, to show other people that, yes, there is some reason why a Christian might not believe in the view, this pre-tribulational view, which is the most widespread nowadays. Now, we've got... Uh, I wanted to go under an hour. I, I think that's uh, our, our limit. But uh, I might as well put in one more thing that's related to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1 is an interesting passage because I think it causes difficulties or it lays out certain challenges depending on how you look at it from the standpoint of different millennial positions as well. Now, so far, we have been talking simply about the events 
immediately related to the second coming and not what happens after the second coming. Now, you may realize that some people believe after the second coming comes a millennial period of great peace and prosperity, but where there is still physical death and sin in the world. Other people, amillennialists, believe that the next thing is already the eternal state, consummation of all things where sin is completely abolished from the earth and the earth is renewed and there is no more death at all. Now, 2 Thessalonians 1, it seems to me, is also relevant to that question. It's relevant in the following way. First of all, concerning the post-millennial position, which says that we are to expect an era of great peace and prosperity right here before the second coming, that I think this passage creates tension there because it seems to expect that the afflictions to which believers are subject are going to continue until the close of the age, until the second coming. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul didn't know exactly when the second coming was going to be. He didn't know whether it would be in the near future within the Thessalonians' own lifetime or whether it would take as long as, in fact, it has taken 2,000 years almost. He didn't know that, and yet the observations he made, it seems to me, are observations in which we can safely believe are, are, are consistent with however long it would be, namely that believers can expect to receive trouble and persecution until the second coming, and that is the time and not before when they have decisive relief. So there's a certain tension, it seems to me, created with postmillennialism for that reason. There's also a tension created with premillennialism for a very different reason. Premillennialism believes that in this period there is the millennial age of great peace and prosperity, but where there is still death and sin somewhat, although it is greatly subdued. The difficulty is where do the people come from who will start off this period on earth? That is, where do people come from who will have bodies like our own bodies still is, bodies made of dust, not transformed yet to the body of Christ's resurrection? You have to have people then who are still reproducing, having children, dying. At the start of the millennium, you have to have those people there in order for the the earth to be populated and for people for, to continue to die and so on. Now, the, the, the crucial question is, where do those people come from? Because we are told by Paul what happens to believers. Believers in Christ are raised bodily. Their bodies are transformed so that they're no longer subject to sin or death at all. Every Christian, of course, believes that. But we're also told what happens to unbelievers, namely that they go to eternal destruction. It's hell. It's not simply a preliminary kind of tribulation. And the consequence is, and this is a problem which I have with premillennialism, frankly, is there doesn't seem to be anybody left in some kind of intermediate position who would then populate uh, the millennium. 
Now, I think this is a fairly serious problem because it rests on a rather fundamental um, ground-level atmosphere in the New Testament, namely that there are only two kinds of people. And that the message of the gospel and the call of the gospel comes only until the second coming, that that's all the chance you have, and that the second coming results in a separation. It results in uh, a final separation of these two parties. So it's not merely this passage, although this passage, I think, uh, is the strongest and clearest one that articulates some of this problem, but this passage is not unique in the way in which it is sensitive to this, this uh, New Testament emphasis over and over again on the fact there are only two kinds of people, and that although it's possible, of course, for people to come to Christ during this age, that this is the only time, this is the only chance that they have. So I want you to think about that uh, as well, although let me assure you, I think there are some problems to amillennialism too. Revelation 20, of course, is a classic passage which is... Uh, always been uh, uh, brought forward as a passage as an argument against amillennialism. So I think we've got to be careful about uh, claiming that one passage uh, is going to carry the day all by itself. We've got to try to bring together all of God's teaching in the Word of God. That may not always be easy. I myself, of course, believe that the Scripture is consistent with itself, that there are no contradictions but it may not always be easy for us <laughs> to start out uh, and uh, to reconcile all the apparent uh, teachings of Scripture with one another. Well, let's uh, close then on that note. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I would uh, like to open it up for questions. Lord, we thank you for our time together in thinking about your word and in thinking about our hope for the second coming of Christ and we realize that uh, all our hopes for life and salvation are, in the end, bound up with your promises of his coming and of our full uh, uh, salvation and the, the achievement of uh, final victory over sin in association with his coming. And we would pray, Lord, uh, fervently for uh, the coming of Jesus Christ in righteousness and in glory uh, that we may praise him forever. But Lord, we also would pray concerning these differences which still exist among your people, concerning the interpretation of your word. We pray that we would be peacemakers, that we would help to um, be bridge builders toward those who disagree. We pray also that not only we, but uh, our friends and the, lar the church at large would grow in knowledge that there would be a gradual coming to uh, a, a deeper and more accurate view of the total teaching of your word on this subject. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yes, questions now. Matthew 24, verses 29, 39. Yes, uh, it's a good question. I, uh, I want to warn you, I didn't come prepared necessarily to uh, give answers to uh, all uh, verses uh, here and there in the Bible. Uh, and I, as a matter of fact, there are some uh, passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that uh, I do not fully understand 
yet, and uh, I would be reluctant to, uh, uh, to say very much about. Uh, this particular passage, I think uh, the basic solution comes in saying that it is partly a recapitulation of some of the ideas which have come forward in the earlier part of Matthew 24. So we're not dealing then with things which are still later in the chronological sequence. Uh, verses 36, for instance, cycles back in its reflections. No one knows about that day, presuming the coming of Christ uh, is being spoken of. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And then, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So there is a point then about the suddenness of the coming and what will happen. And then, uh, verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Now, I have understood that. I realize there's some disagreement here as being a reference again to the rapture right here. All right, so that the person who is a believer is taken up with Christ and the other is left. And the being left there, it's consistent with the context. The context in Noah is Noah was taken up into the ark the rest of the people were left on earth, and that mean, meant being left and subject to destruction by the flood. Similarly, believers are taken up. The rest of the people then are left to destruction, which, of course, will follow immediately on this scheme. But uh, I don't see any particular problem with reconciling this particular part with either of the two views. In other words, it does speak of a, of a rapture, though some people distinguish this event from the rapture, but... I see no what reason why it shouldn't be interpreted as the rapture. John. Yes. That may well be. I don't see a lot of that in the Old Testament, except by way of suggestion. Later, yes. There, I think there's no absolute bar to that. Uh, in terms, I just made reference to the Greek text here for myself. Uh, and, of course, that that would then be a way of saying, well, maybe there are two successive elements of punishment. Um, there is somewhat of difficulty here in that, the, the, for one thing, the whole thing is one sentence in Greek. Uh, it's a long sentence, and consequently the thing has been split up for the benefit of the English reader. But besides that, uh, I think the, uh, the reference to punishment in verse 7 is most easily understood as being elaborated in verse 9 unless the Thessalonians already knew, unless they had a full-blown scheme in their mind, I think they would have read the thing as essentially unified. Now you can always postulate that the Thessalonians were already thoroughly taught and that they already had a full-blown scheme like this and uh, that they were so, so sure of it that uh, by whatever means necessary, they would have reconciled what Paul was saying with that. I think that's a kind of dangerous assumption to make, of course, because then you're in effect fitting the scripture into a scheme which you already have rather than asking, well, what's the, the most natural way of understanding it? So I, I see a close connection there, particularly because, well, of this first when, the uh, retribution comes, uh, trouble comes to those who trouble you and relief to us who are troubled. Well, if you treat that as the next sentence, then that is separate. But the, uh, the trouble comes, you could still say, yeah, you could still say, well, the trouble that comes is coming simultaneously, but it's the trouble of the tribulation.
But uh, you still have difficulty with the fact that the trouble that comes in the tri this tribulation to unbelievers comes when Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in blazing fire, which sounds already like the visible second coming. So that would still be a difficulty. But the thing is not, I, I'm glad you brought this up, because the thing is not an absolutely airtight case. And it's seldom the, it's seldom the case that we can make uh, an airtight case with a single scripture because the scripture is not intended to be a technically precise manual that would put in all kinds of qualifications everywhere. Uh, and yet I still think that the sort of natural reading of this passage uh, uh, leads to um, a unified, this kind of view which I had overhead. Yes. Well, that return, this coming to earth would be for judgment. And obviously the people who separate the second coming into two stages would also, the two stages would look exactly the same, uh, almost. The one stage would be the rapture and then a return, but the second stage would be Christ coming with his saints. Now the phrase, thus we shall always be with the Lord, is of course true here because the saints are with Christ from then on. That's correct. Uh, that was, it's an additional kind of wrinkle that I didn't want to get into. But there is, uh, I have read in the literature, some people who believe in pre-tribulation rapture arguing for this because it's the way to get people into millennium. The believers are taken out here, but those who are converted during the millennium, according to this view, usually it is said, they who are converted during the tribulation, pardon me, they do enter the millennium with bodies still of dust and uh, still subject to death and so on. So that some people are actually attracted to this view because, as they see it, it solves the problem, which is otherwise a serious problem, of how you get people to start the millennium off. And that uh, that's an additional complexity, but it's something which ought, which can be said. Cooled it. Uh, good point. Um, I might as well give a bookstore uh, plug at this point. There, there are two books, and uh, unfortunately I don't have the bibliographies with me. One, I think, by Millard Erickson, where he is the editor, and he's asked four, I think it's four different people, to write defending, setting forth four different views and also responding a little bit to the other views. So that's a very balanced one in the sense that it's the actual people who are advocating these views who are doing the writing. Uh, or no, that isn't the one by Erickson. Erickson, I think, did his own. Yeah, okay. There is another one by Erickson, which is also uh, um, sets forth the views and analyzes them pretty sympathetically, although I think his, his own commitment to premillennialism does show at some points. But uh, yeah, both of those books, Klaus, C.L., C-L-O-U-S-E I, th I think these are both intervarsity I'm not sure and Millard Erickson well ask the bookstore people if you have any trouble because I think uh, in a sense maybe I it's unrealistic but I wish I could have required everybody to read <laughs> one or other of these books before we even discussed it because they would lay out the basics of the major positions that evangelicals take today. Um, I've, I'm afraid our time has really slipped by, and uh, I'd better close off the questions at this point. I'll be around for a few minutes 
uh, so I can talk informally with some of you. 